Welcome to another episode of the Spoon Mob Podcast. My name is Ray. I am your host. On today's episode, it's another Chefs and Guests. Uh, this is actually the 10th one that we've done. First one that we haven't had an actual executive chef on, Matt Larkin, who's one of the chefs in the kitchen, one of the cooks in the kitchen over at Chapman's. He's actually a line cook. Uh, he joined me. He was kind of the inspiration for the a Journey to Vietnam menu that they did uh, a couple months ago. And it was like a week-long menu, uh, a course kind of dine-in tasting menu. They did some like uh, takeout stuff too as well, but... They actually rolled a couple of the dishes over to their next dine-in menu too. So like the scallop dish that a lot of people had that originated on the Vietnam menu. Uh, and there was a couple other things too as well. But it was a, it was a really cool experience. We were kind of at the time doing, you know, we had the the Parts Now Known episode on Vietnam come out too. And and so there was kind of like all this stuff with the Vietnam and that we were kind of just doing. So it really worked out well. And, you know, I think I said something, you know, when doing kind of like the restaurant review uh, about, you know, reaching out to Matt eventually, but he actually wound up reaching out to me uh, before I could reach out to him just because I usually try and space, you know, how uh, soon, you know, when I invite somebody on the podcast and they agree to do it, you know, try and space it out a little bit just so they don't record it. And then it's like three months later is when it gets released. Like that's just not cool on my end to do so. So we recorded this a couple of weeks ago, but um, yeah, we pretty much just talk about, you know, him living in Vietnam for like six, seven years, kind of how he got into cooking. And it's a lot about just what living in Vietnam, living in kind of Southeast Asia for six, six, seven years is like from, you know, his perspective and and just kind of get into all that and a little bit into kind of his cooking career too as well and the inspiration behind the menu and and what he kind of wanted to do and, and all that stuff too as well. So it's really cool to to just kind of be able to vibe out in a way um, on just like what it would be like to live abroad and, and traveling, you know, especially with, uh, coronavirus and everything, shutting most of that down. And, and he gets into that about coming back, you know, with coronavirus and all the restrictions and stuff and, and being in Hong Kong when they were doing some protesting too, as well. And what that was like. So it's a really cool episode. It's about an hour long, it's tense chefs and guests episode that we've done. So if you you know, missed any of the others, they're all on the website. Just go to spoonmom.com, click on the Spoonmom podcast at the top little drop down menu. You can click on chefs and guests. That'll take you right to uh, kind of a list of all the different episode numbers and corresponding chef that's been on. So if you missed any of those that are there, that'll take you to an Apple link. Uh, all the episodes are still available in our podcast feed too as well. So uh, make sure you're subscribed to the podcast feed if you haven't, and all that stuff will just auto-populate it when we release it. Um, this is the second of four consecutive Chef and Guest episodes. Uh, next week uh, will actually be a chef from outside Columbus and actually outside the United States, uh, Hector Laguna up in Vancouver. He's the executive chef at Botanist, which is a really cool restaurant that we ate at uh, a couple years ago. So I was able to kind of just sit down with him, and, and but that'll be coming out uh, next week. So keep an eye out on the feed. But this episode is just it's just really unique. It's just it's something we haven't you know exactly done before. It's kind of the first guest that we've had on that is still you know a chef is still a cook, but isn't running the restaurant. So a little bit different of perspective, and then it's also you know pretty travel heavy too as well, which is something that we haven't had on. Um, usually it's about kind of how a chef's career kind of has evolved, how they got into it. We still, like I said, we still touch on some of that stuff, but it's a it's a lot on Vietnam. So if you ever thought about going to Vietnam, there's going to be a lot of good tips. Uh, definitely a lot of questions that Ben and I had from uh, when we did the parts down known uh, Vietnam, which was on the way city, kind of in the middle of the country. A lot of questions that kind of we had doing that episode um, too as well kind of came up here. So I was able to actually get kind of, you know, some answers, firsthand answers from somebody who actually did it, lived it. So that was pretty cool. So check that episode out too, if you haven't, that part's not known episode. But um, yeah, without further ado, this is my uh, interview with Chef Matt Larkin, who's in the kitchen over at Chapman's. Thanks for doing this. Oh, I'm so happy to do it. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, we really enjoyed the the Vietnam menu. So and we've kind of been doing a couple of different things that have kind of revolved ironically around Vietnam at the same time. So kind of all just makes sense in a, in a weird way, mm -hmm. but want to definitely get into, you know, you living in, in Vietnam for the amount of time that you did. But I guess we'll kind of start at the beginning, kind of like we do with most everybody, a little bit about yourself, like where are you originally from? Like, how'd you get into cooking originally? Um, yeah, I'm from Columbus, Ohio. Born and raised here, uh, grew up here. Okay. Um, 
cooking was always a hobby. I think definitely got it from my dad. That was one of the things like hanging out in the backyard, barbecuing was a, a good family activity. So cooking was something I was always very passionate about, but never really thought it would be a career. Um, I ended up going to Alabama for college, studied biology, really thought I wanted to be a science teacher. Uh, and then Vietnam after that to get some teaching experience. So when my girlfriend and I first moved out there, we were teaching English. Uh, the plan was to just travel a bit, teach, come back to America in a few months, and then uh, go from there. And we got, got stuck there. Um, shortly after we got there, um, somebody I was teaching with at the time was bartending part-time at a craft American-owned craft brewery that just opened up. And um, he knew I loved to cook. So I asked him, like, hey, uh, the chef, another American guy from Nashville, need any help in the kitchen? Like, just come hang out on my off days, work for beers. Uh, and that was my first kitchen job, really, was just kind of helping out um, at the craft brewery. And then it uh, just slowly grew from there into a, a full-time job. So when you're, you know, you go to Alabama, like you mentioned, and you decided to go over to Vietnam, how did that all come together? Was that just like, we're going to go over there and just check it out and like kind of vacation almost and you just wind up staying or how did that all work? Yeah, a little bit of a, a working vacation. Um, we we did a uh, English teaching certification program through a school in Vietnam. So um, towards the end of graduating, we realized like, okay, next step, start uh, time to start looking for things. So we found the certification program, flew over to Vietnam, did a, I think it was a four week course there and then finished the course and signed on for a uh, year-long teaching contract through the school that certified us. So we knew we'd be there for a year um, to teach English and just kind of travel around. So in that time, we did have a lot of free time to travel, like move around Vietnam, move around Southeast Asia. Um, but we always kept coming back to Ho Chi Minh City, and uh, it was just a really easy place, really comfortable place to be. We were very happy there. So when our teaching contract ended, by this time I'd already started cooking. Um, so there was no reason, no real reason to move on. We just kind of uh, stayed there and hung out. When you guys decided to stay, did you have to get some sort of like visa to stay in the country or anything like that? Did you guys have to apply for it? Yes. Yes. So we, when we did the teaching, we started with uh, work permits, teaching visas through the school. Uh, and then eventually uh, when I moved to the bar full time, they were able to get me a work permit. Did you ever like pick up? Vietnamese at all, just kind of basic lingo or anything, or did you have to like a bit? Um, yeah, I would like. I would say my Vietnamese was good enough for bars and taxis. Like I, uh, I knew my numbers, my colors, directions. I could tell people go straight, turn right, things like that. It was like a a very like one hundred five level Vietnamese. Um, the, but the thing is, especially in so Vietnam is broken up, or Ho Chi Minh City is broken up into districts. There's twenty four districts that make up Ho Chi Minh City. Um, the central ones are very Western in the sense that a ton of international business travelers, a ton of international tourists, um, the businesses there cater a lot to native English speakers. So for the most part, everyone speaks at least basic English, uh, even to the point where I would try to speak Vietnamese and their English was so much better. They would just answer me in English and then we go from there. So yeah, it was pretty easy to get by. And then, um, once we started doing, like, we got more comfortable and our Vietnamese got a bit better, we would start doing more, like, rural road trips and things like that. So out in the countryside, that was definitely a place where you needed to know a little bit more. But it was also a country where everyone was so friendly and open that if you just made the littlest bit of effort trying to speak Vietnamese, people were always so helpful and just thrilled that you were even trying to learn. So they were, uh, yeah, very uh, accommodating. So it made it easy. Yeah, I think that might surprise kind of some people just when everybody, I think, thinks like Vietnam, they initially probably think Vietnam War. But everything that I've heard is it's a really open, friendly country. Most kind of Southeast Asia countries are to like Western travelers. So you guys land in, you know, Ho Chi Minh City, which used to be called Saigon before they renamed it. Mm -hmm. Was that just because that's where the teaching program was where you guys were? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we looked at a few different cities. Um Ho Chi Minh, Hanoi. Uh, we also looked at Bangkok, um, just kind of like the big tourist hubs. That seemed to be where most jobs, easiest uh, place, like most easy to find an apartment, low cost of living. Um, we kind of did the pros and cons list and Ho Chi Minh City just seemed like a, a very good place to settle quickly was kind of what we heard. Like it's easy to find a quick job, find a quick apartment. Um, 
it's the cost of living is relatively low compared to the rest of big cities in Southeast Asia. So, um, yeah, it just seemed like a good place to start. Uh, never intended to stay there for as long as we did, but it all worked out. How did you guys decide like when it was time to move on? Cause you lived in different cities. So like, was it just kind of uh, the time felt right? And you're just like, yeah, you want to go check out like some other place to live or, you know, some other city or, or how'd you guys? Yeah. Um, a lot of it was job opportunities. Um, so the, we lived in Ho Chi Minh city for almost six years. And then in that time I was working a bit in Hanoi. So I would spend, it's only a two hour flight. It's a really easy commute. So I would spend like a week there every month and got to see that a bit more. Um, and then when I finally left Ho Chi Minh for good, it was to move to Hong Kong for another job. So yeah, once there was a, an opportunity that seemed like a good place to, to jump to, it was a good time to leave. But until then we were just kind of, uh, hanging out and taking it day by day. Was it pretty easy to find like work once you were done with the teaching program? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, especially the, the network of expat chefs. It's a lot of British, Australian, uh, Canadian chefs is pretty small for the most part. So once I started to kind of get involved in that network, it was, you hear about jobs pretty quickly. There was always, and it's another thing that it's, it is a very fast moving pace of life in the sense that I think people come and go quite often. So um, there were always job openings, restaurant openings, places closing, places opening up. So there was a, if you knew the right people, there was always something to do. Uh, Did you work like a different place, like in every city kind of, or was it strictly like Ho Chi Minh really? Cause I I know you mentioned that you fly in Hanoi. Uh, Strictly Ho Chi Minh. Um, The only city I really worked in outside of Ho Chi Minh was Hanoi. Um, And that was all for the same bar. Um, so the, that bar actually, it blew up, um, so quickly. It was one of the first craft breweries in Vietnam. Uh, so when I started in 2015, um, I joined the bar, I think three or four months after they'd opened up. Um, and then within three years, by the time I'd left, we'd opened four restaurants in two cities. They opened a few more after I left. Um, they distribute to, I think, seven or eight different countries. So that was just, for me, right place, right time that uh, I got to do a lot and see a lot and travel a lot through that. And then after I left the bar, um, I was doing consulting with another American chef I had met over there. And that was only in Ho Chi Minh City, but we kind of bounced around to different districts, different restaurants. So getting to see a bit more and working with a bit more local cooks, which was fun. Like how easy was it to get around in terms of transportation? I mean, I know scooters are super popular. Um, like you mentioned, the airlines interconnected with the city. But is there is it really easy with public transportation or is it just a lot of walking or what's that like? Yeah, public transportation, not so much. Um, they, there is a public bus system, um, but it's not the most reliable. But the the scooters there are amazing. My girlfriend and I, we each had our own scooter, which was so much fun to just kind of zip around the city on. And it is such, it's very packed. So you a lot of it is, and nothing's version of, um, initially it was Uber. Um, there's also a different company called Grab that I think is Asia, but same ride sharing app. Um, so nowadays you can just hop on your phone and book a motorbike taxi that's there in moments, which is also a lot of fun to just hop on the back of somebody else's motorbike and have them zip you around the city. Did you have any experience with like scooters or motorcycles before going over there, like riding or anything like that? Or was that strictly first time? No, no, not at all. That was, uh, that was my first experience. So that was, uh, it was a lot of fun. Was it intimidating at first? Cause you just see, like you see videos of people, you know, going through and it just, it all seems like a giant cluster. Like there's a stop sign, but nobody really stops the stop sign and, and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. I think traffic laws are more suggestions than laws uh over there so it was that took a bit to get used to um and it was definitely not something that i i hopped on like day one right away um we we walked around for a while we would take other people like we'd ride on the back of other people's motorbikes Uh, and i remember when i first i think it was about a month after being there i finally rented my first bike and wanted to learn to drive Uh, and i would only drive at night i would wait until midnight when the streets were empty and then try and get a feel for it so it it was definitely a, a slow process of working my way up into to rush hour traffic but there is it seems chaotic but there is a it's almost like a school of fish there is a flow to it once you kind of get into it it's uh it's just hard to see on the surface okay all right that that makes me feel 
Because that's one thing that's like, you know, if you go, it's like, how do you get around the scooters? It's like, I don't know. But that, that definitely makes me feel better. Comparing kind of Ho Chi Minh and, and Hanoi, what was kind of like the biggest differences between the two cities, aside from obviously like their geographical location being north and south? But was there any major differences? I think those cities felt very different. Um, I do think Hanoi is a bit older, uh, a bit more traditional. I had a, a friend tell me one time, a Vietnamese friend, tell me that the, the locals always say that Hanoi is a place where you save money. Ho Chi Minh is a place where you spend money. Um, that I think Hanoi is a bit slower pace of life, quieter, whereas Ho Chi Minh. And I think it, politically it also is um, because Hanoi is the capital. It's where the, the Communist Party is based. It is a bit more communist. Uh, whereas Ho Chi Minh is, it's always been, it was French, it was American, it's always been more Western, um, much more capitalist, where you do see any any Western business, American, British, Australian, whatever, that comes into Vietnam tends to start in Ho Chi Minh first. So it is a bit more, I just think, fast-paced um, in Ho Chi Minh City compared to Hanoi. And of course, the food is different also, even more so than I think it's kind of divided up into three regions. So you have your Northern cuisine, your cuisine from the central highlands and the central coast, and then your southern cuisine. So yeah, you can definitely see differences in the food as well. What's the major differences between those three cuisine-wise? It's spice, heat level, or acidity? Or Yep. Ingredients are pretty similar. Um, you do see a lot of the same ingredients. Um, but yeah, I think the, the spiciest food tends to come from the middle of the country. And that also, also I think, tends to be the most artistic food. Um, uh, you talked about it in your Huey uh, recap for Parts Unknown, that that, was, um, that is one of the older areas of Vietnam. It was the dynastic capital hundreds of years ago. So that's always kind of been like the seat of culture. And um, you do see a lot of more like the imperial dining influence in the middle of the country, uh, whereas the South is much sweeter. And I think the North is a bit spicier. Did you get a chance to do any of kind of like that imperial, like obviously not that, like in, in that episode, she's like an artist and has her whole little like thing, but I'm sure there's other places that did kind of imperial type, you know, cuisine and everything. Did you have a chance to try any of that or, or anything? Not as much as I had wanted to. Um, we did visit Hue a few times, um, but it was a lot of street food. So like a lot of the, like I know Anthony Brady, like the, um, the fried snails in the noodle bowl. Um, it's a lot of, I think what's the, it's called, Ban Beo and Ban Ibram, uh, like they're little fried rice cakes that are very, very common in the middle of the country. Uh, and they're one of my favorite Vietnamese foods. So we definitely sought that out a lot. And Bombo Hoi, the, the spicy beef noodle soup was another one. So we didn't do a lot of like imperial restaurant dining in Hoi. It was mostly street food every time we went. But you still see those influences in the uh, those foods. So Was there anything that you like ate or that like locals recommended, like you have to try this and it just didn't stick with you. Like there's something that like everybody keeps telling me to try this every time I've had it. I just still don't really like it. Like, did you encounter anything like that? There were a few. Um, actually, the two that come to mind were both egg dishes. And I maybe it's just I'm not a huge fan of eggs to begin with. But there's one was called the, the century egg, where it's a fermented hard boiled egg that was just way too funky for me. It, it smelled like a rotten egg and I just couldn't get past that. But so many people just absolutely loved it. And the other one was the, um, in Vietnamese, it's called hot Viet Lan, um, but you might know it as Baloop. It's like the partially, like there's, there's an embryo in there. And that was another one that I had friends like that's a, it's a really common street food, like drinking food. Like if you're on the sidewalk drinking beers on plastic stools, you just get a few of those fermented or um, those duck eggs. And I just couldn't do it. It was not for me. Yeah, my wife, uh, in a kind of previous role with her company, uh, she would have to go over to Pacific Asia region. And I think it was it was probably when she was either in like the Philippines or Indonesia. I, I don't remember which country, but like the local office workers like took her out and like she tried balut. And I guess there's different stages. Like it's not just, it is a developed embryo, but I guess there's different versions where sometimes there's like, actual feathers in there too yeah i guess I, I she tried it i mean I, I there's no way that you're getting me to 
<laughs> chomp down on that. Uh, that's that's not happening. Yeah, that's going on the no list. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, how much, I mean, I know like, you know, Vietnam is heavily influenced by, you know, the French had the region control over the region for so long. Is there still a good amount of kind of French influence or has that mostly like subsided and now it's kind of mostly, you know, not, I don't want to say local because every, everything comes from somewhere, but has that influence mostly like dissipated through culture, cuisine, all that stuff? I would say for the most part. Yeah. Um, I did like the older generation. I had friends whose grandparents still spoke French, but that's not something that millennials or the younger generations are interested in at all. You just need an ingredients, obviously. It's no one can ever come up with the the true story, but there's the rumor that pho is a French. It came from pot of pho. Is is always the uh, the story that that's pho is actually a French soup, not the Vietnamese soup, is what people always say. And then things like the banh mi, like the baguettes, are obviously French. Um, the condensed milk and coffee came from the French. So you do see, you do see some lingering ingredients. Um, and of course there's still, there's some French enclaves, like there are some French international schools and things like that. But for the most part, I would say they are pretty Vietnamese at this point. Um, and a lot of that, again, politically, like they, after the American war ended uh, in the seventies, they were closed off to the rest of the world for 20 years. Uh, it wasn't until I think 1994 that Bill Clinton opened uh, relations again. So, for a long time, they, for almost a generation, they got rid of all their French, American, Western influences. Um, and I think that kind of brought a lot of their cuisine and culture back to their dynastic old Vietnamese roots. And now it's kind of, now things are open up again. And I think this is kind of the case across Southeast Asia is that most places tend to be hyper-local and celebrate their old traditions, their own ingredients, those kinds of things. So I think a really good example of that now is a restaurant in Ho Chi Minh City called Anan, which I would probably say is, I think, the best restaurant in Ho Chi Minh City. And they are hyper-Vietnamese, all local ingredients, local dishes. The chef is American Vietnamese and does come from a more classical French background. So you do see sort of that like new American Nouveau cuisine presentation, but the the food itself is 100% Vietnamese. Is there anything that you encountered kind of food wise that you enjoyed or, or maybe you didn't, doesn't, you know, either way, but you kind of saw that this wouldn't really translate to like American palates, like the traditional, you know, Midwestern palate is a lot of, you know, meat and potatoes and, and burgers and all that stuff. I mean, some of it depends on how adventurous you are as an eater and how interested you are in that stuff but in general was there anything that you encountered that you're like there's no way this would work in america whatsoever flavor wise i don't think so which is honestly one of the things i love so much about vietnamese cuisine is that i think it is it's very bright and i think it's very balanced so you do get a good balance of sweet savory spicy salty usually in every bite and i think that's something that kind of translates universally um it's pretty much all the food that I can think of that comes to mind was always very refreshing, very well balanced, um, really delicious. Some of it was spicy that may be a bit too spicy for some people, but another cool thing about Vietnamese is that it's, it is also a very DIY cuisine where most Vietnamese restaurants on the table, you're going to have a tray of condiments where you can kind of doctor it to yourself. If you want to add more fish sauce, more vinegar, more chilies, more sugar, things like that. Really, I think the hardest thing, like the most culture shock thing would be textures um, that I don't think American and European cuisine does the the kind of slimy, chewy texture very well. Uh, and I remember a few times, like there were a lot of like steamed rice noodles that were just too gooey when I first tried them. A lot of steamed meats or boiled meats. Um, my friend took me to a really famous steamed chicken restaurant one time and I I was not into it at all. When I first went, I was like, this does not sound appealing to me at all. Uh, but then I had it and it was amazing. And I think that's, that was probably the biggest hurdle for me to get over was that like slimy steamed texture in a lot of dishes. Um, but now I love it. I can't get enough of it. So yeah, that that does seem, you know, I know like one of the big things I think in, um, in China, I had a a coworker went to China on his 
dad was kind of not necessarily a diplomat, but was somehow involved with that. And there was a trip and he got to go. But one of the things was like sea cucumber. And he was just like, there's, it's just, it's, you can't describe it, but it's no, like, it's just, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a weird one. Was, uh, what were like some of the favorite things, you know, was there one that stood out or do you have like a top five, like favorite things that you ate while you were there? I mean, I know you're there for, you know, six, seven years, so it's probably hard to kind of boil it all down to that, but yeah, it's a, it's a long list. Um, I mean, I love barbecue in general from anywhere. Um, that's a big reason I went to Alabama for school. Um, and a big reason I moved to Vietnam was I, I just love barbecue and so much of Vietnamese cuisine is done over charcoal. It's, it's a grilling culture. Um, definitely it's hot. Everything's outside. So that makes it easy. It's, it's always grill season there. Um, and yeah, just all the street side grills that just smelled so good with the grilled pork and the grilled seafood all the time was a big one. Uh, seafood is another one that I was not a big seafood eater, especially not growing up in Columbus. That was not something that was really on my radar. Um, that really expanded my palate quite a bit. Yeah. You don't really encounter a whole lot of seafood in the Midwest. I mean, you get some stuff from, yeah. So when I went to Alabama, I kind of, I got a bit more into like the Gulf coast shrimp and started eating more oysters and things like that. And then in, yeah, in Vietnam, it was just a, a whole new world. So that, I think that was probably where I expanded the most was eating a lot more seafood than I ever had before. Why did you guys uh, decide to come back to the U.S.? Like, what was the reason behind that? Just time or? Uh, COVID mostly um, was a big, a big motivating factor um, with me being in restaurants. And then my partner is also in events. Just there wasn't any work really. And we've been there like we'd always discussed coming back. It'd been a long time we've missed a lot of holidays and birthdays and things like that. So it had always been a discussion of like, Oh, maybe at some point soon we should go back and be closer to family. And then this kind of just made the decision for us. So that's what brought us back. And then Chapman's is really what kept me in Columbus. Um, so we looked here, uh, my girlfriend's from Texas. So that was another option when we were packing up and leaving Vietnam, we were looking where to settle. And uh, I met BJ and, that uh that made the decision for us. So I want to get into to that, but going just backwards a little bit. So with COVID, COVID broke out there before the US, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I mean, what was I guess your experience? Was it similar to what you've kind of heard in the US or experienced in the US where it was just kind of everything kind of shut down, everybody was on lockdown, or or how did all that work over there? Yeah. And oddly enough for me, I got to I guess I've kind of experienced it three times at this point where I was in Hong Kong when it initially broke. So that would have been in January. It was when it started coming out of Wuhan and people in Hong Kong were getting pretty weary um, and worried about it. And it was also weird because Hong Kong had had the protests for six months. So, and the restaurant I was in at the time was right on the main protest route. So we had people marching past for weeks and weeks and it, it definitely affected business. So we were, we were already slow. And then when COVID hit, everything just completely shut down. So the places that were trying to power through the protests just kind of stopped. Um, and that was when schools started to close, museums started to close, they stopped running ferries, that kind of stuff. And at this point, I had been there for a year already. So I decided, okay, I don't see this changing anytime soon. I'll go back to Vietnam, where my girlfriend still was. And that was in February. So the plan was go to Vietnam for a couple of weeks, um, do a bit of traveling. I haven't really decided exactly where I wanted to go yet. And then within a week of being in Vietnam, Vietnam shut down. So closed the borders, closed all the restaurants. So getting a job there was not an option anymore. Um, So we stayed there for three more months after that um, while things were in lockdown, both of us unemployed. So still just kind of trying to figure out what the next steps were. And then in June, when we realized, okay, this is not changing here either, uh, we've both been employed, unemployed for six months at that point, um, we decided to come back to America after that. So that was in June, we got back in the summer. Where Was it similar with like the lockdown, like can't leave your you know apartment or house or anything, can go to the grocery store or to pick up food, but that's it or, or how'd they kind of... Not as strict. Um, I think they were... There was not much to do. Um, bars and restaurants closed down, karaoke parlors closed down, things like that. 
and everyone was wearing masks and socially distancing. So there was not as much community spread. Um, and they were doing one thing they did a very good job of was contact tracing. If somebody did test positive, they were the government and like the Ministry of Health was on it right away. Um, they knew where you'd been, who you interacted with, making sure everything everyone was quarantining. Um, and they did set up a lot of the quarantine hospitals. So if you had tested positive or interacted with someone who tested positive, they'd come knocking at your door and take you out to the hospital for two weeks and make sure you tested negative before you were let go. But in terms of like, we were still going grocery shopping easily, like distance masks, things like that. But it was never, there wasn't as much of the panic buying and people hoarding toilet paper and things like that. An American thing. <laughs> yeah. With uh, being in Hong Kong. So you were in Hong Kong for like a year? But yeah, just over a year. So you're working there and then did you arrive in Hong Kong when the protests were already underway or did that start while you were already there? No, that was about six months after I got there. So I had six months of normalcy, uh, good old Hong Kong. And then six months into it was when the first protests happened and then did that for six months and then COVID after that. I mean, what was that like since you're you're basically working on a main street that the protesters are using and it's just escalating and then obviously, you know, it kind of escalates a little bit more once uh, Daryl Morey, who was the Rockets GM at the time, like sends out that tweet and everything. And that kind of puts it more so on, I guess, the national stage where stuff was still going on. But people, I don't think were super really understanding what exactly they were protesting, which is basically extradition. Um, they wanted, I think, if I remember correctly, they wanted to extradite somebody from Hong Kong back to China. I forget what exactly it was that they were accusing them of doing. And it was basically kind of like the slippery slope argument where if they allowed that to happen, then most of the Hong Kong residents felt that China could just come in and basically extradite whoever they wanted to for whatever reason. So, you know, being all there and seeing all that escalate, like, I mean, what was that like? Was it just, did it become almost kind of normal because it was happening every day for so long or was it? Yeah, it was, uh, it was fascinating. Uh, I will say I never felt in danger. And they were, the protests were very organized. So the, obviously you see photos and videos and news clips of um, a lot of like the riots and the protests and there was a lot of property destruction, but they were, everything was announced beforehand. So you knew, okay, this day, don't go down this road. Um, so it was, if you, if you wanted to, you could avoid um, all of this, but it was massive. I remember uh, my apartment was also on the, uh, the one of the main protest routes and well i think it was the the second big protest there were two million people that marched that day and all day long i I didn't leave my apartment that day because i could see from my window just a mass of people so that was amazing um but i did feel safe and it was for the most part pretty under control um it was never something where i felt like i was in danger or i have to get out of here immediately I know that's not the case for a lot of people, um, and especially the the restaurant group I worked for in Hong Kong was very international. They hired people from all over the world, and I know a lot of there were a few um, mainland Chinese and Taiwanese employees, and they did not feel safe. I know I, I know specifically one person who was from Taiwan. He just left in the middle of the night, uh, didn't tell anybody until he made it safely back to Taiwan that he just didn't feel safe around the Hong Kong police um, and wanted to go home. So. For I mean, definitely coming from an American privileged position, it didn't affect me um, personally, but that was not the case for everyone. So, were you able to go to anywhere else? To I mean, obviously Vietnam, uh, Hong Kong, but did you travel to any of the other countries in the surrounding area during your time there? Or? Yeah, yeah, we did get to get out a bit. There are definitely a few places on my bucket list I didn't hit. I'm very upset I never made it to Japan. That was a a big one. Um, but we did a lot of. We both love the beach, so that was always. If we had time to go on vacation, we were going to go to the beach somewhere. So we've seen a lot of amazing, beautiful beaches in Southeast Asia. We got scuba certified in Thailand and have been scuba diving there and in Indonesia, which was amazing. Um, Yeah, I think it's just such a beautiful part of the world. What are, I guess, where all did you go? What are some of the places that you guys went and what are some of the places that you didn't get to go? Oh, some highlights. Um, When we went to Thailand, we flew into Bangkok spent a few nights there and then took a train south to Koh Tao, which was just unbelievable. It's the whole island revolves around scuba diving. It's, it's, it's a tiny, tiny island. You can drive the whole thing in like a matter of hours. And there are, I think there's over a hundred scuba dive shops on this island. Um, 
that the entire economy is um, certifying people in scuba diving. So that was really, really fun. The crystal clear water, amazing coral, amazing uh, wildlife. It was really, really special. Bali was another highlight that I, I love that place. Again, like just beautiful jungles, beautiful beaches, um, good hiking. There's just so much to do. And another place I went, I was only there for a weekend and uh, never got to go back was Taiwan. And I think that's, it's amazing how much you can do in such a small space that Taipei is one of the biggest cities in Southeast Asia. It's massive, like good infrastructure, good subways, good restaurants, all this stuff. But if you go in any direction for an hour, you're either in this tropical rainforest or at this like pristine, undeveloped, beautiful beach. And it's just crazy to think that you could be in such a big city and then just a short bus ride away, you can go to this amazing tropical beach. And then a short bus ride from that, you can be hiking through the rainforest. It was, it was really, really cool. What are some, I guess, recommendations if somebody was going to travel to Vietnam, what are some things that you would recommend that they do? And is there a certain order? Should they go north to south, south to north if they're hitting up the big cities or? There's so much to do. It's very hard to narrow it down. And I would always recommend people don't try and do too much there because you can do a lot. Um, I know a lot of people that have fallen into the trap of, okay, we're going to do a different city every day. We're going to hit, try and hit it all in a week. Um, and by the end of it, you're just exhausted. So I would say try to think about what you enjoy the most between like beach time, city time, um, like kind of jungly time, and then go from there and pick your cities based on that. So Vietnam obviously has a very, very long coastline, dozens of different beach towns you can hit. But then farther west, when you go more towards Laos, Cambodia, uh, there's great hiking, really good camping, really good trekking. There's a lot of like naturey stuff that you can do. Uh, and then north and south, you have Hanoi in the north, Ho Chi Minh City in the south. Those are your big cities. You're going to get more restaurants, uh, more like guided tours, street food tours, things like that. So kind of prioritize based on, do you want to spend more time at the beach? Do you want to spend more time walking around cities? Do you want to spend more time in the jungle? And then go from there. So then, you know, you guys decided to come back, COVID, all that stuff. How did you guys get back? Obviously, you took a plane, but like, I remember roughly around that time, they were, if you were flying through, I think, Texas, they were putting everybody in like a quarantined, uh, like airport hangar. But then I also remember, I think it was around that time too, or maybe it was a little before, just the, the video of everybody trying to get through O'Hare in Chicago. And it was just like wall-to-wall people. Did you avoid all that stuff? Did you have to go through anything like that or? Yeah, oddly enough, it was. So when we came back, that was early June. And I don't remember the timeline exactly, but at this point, there were no mandated quarantines or anything like that. Um, And nobody was flying at this point. We'd had several flights canceled. It was a hassle trying to get back here eventually. But because nobody was flying, that's the fastest I've ever been through immigration and customs. And yeah, there were no lines nothing. So we flew from Ho Chi Minh to Korea and the Korean airport was empty. All the restaurants were closed. Um, there was just not much there. We did temperature checks and health checks in the Korean airport um, a few different times. Like when we got off the plane and then again, before we got back on. Uh, and then from Korea, we flew to Detroit. And in Detroit, there was not much at all. No, no health screening, no anything like that. No temperature checks. They suggested that you quarantine for two weeks after landing, but there was no no way of checking on that. And then from there, we drove back to Columbus from Detroit. So how did you wind up getting connected with, with BJ and, and staying in Columbus? How did that all happen? Uh, Craigslist, oddly enough. Um, at this point, I was, I was still in Vietnam for that first conversation with BJ. I saw the ad he posted on Craigslist and started looking into the restaurant a little bit more and reading a bit more about BJ. And seemed like an awesome guy, seemed like a good fit. So we had that first Zoom call when I was still in Vietnam. A few, I was I was set to come back to Columbus. I had my flight booked. Um, so I knew like, okay, I'll be back in Columbus. I'll start trying to line up job interviews. And from that first conversation with BJ, I think we hit it off. I could tell we were on the same page. It seemed like a good place to be. Um, and it was like the second day I was back in Columbus, I went by the restaurant to, to meet him in person. And I think I accepted the job that day. It was... I could tell right away it was going to be a good place to be. So it's been going well ever since. So you're in the kitchen. Are you uh, just, I guess, on the line or sous chef? Or do you have a formal title? Or Yeah, line cook is the, the title. Mm-hmm. So now you've been there. I mean, they've been open for, they'll be coming up on a, a year, a couple of months, technically, with like the 
to go stuff that they started. But for yourself, I mean, do you have any, is there any like, you know, thoughts of opening a restaurant of your own one day or? Oh yeah. I mean, just, of course it's something I've, I've thought about. Um, not in the near future, not anytime soon. Yeah. And I still don't know. I don't know exactly how I would define my cuisine. If I had to like brand myself, I'm still not dialed in yet. Um, so I think, and I think BJ has helped me a lot kind of translating those ideas from my head onto a plate. Um, it's been a great experience for me really learning how to, to write a menu and present dishes in a, a nice, pretty appealing way. So yeah, still, still trying to take in as much as I can keep learning. Yeah. I think I might be getting this wrong, but because BJ worked with uh, Aaron Silverman and I think when I was doing some research on Aaron, cause we ate at one of his restaurants out in DC a couple of years ago. Um, Somebody who was, I forget the name, but I think somebody who was kind of like a mentor of Silverman said like, you shouldn't, you should work for like 10 years before you open your own restaurant or something like that. So you can kind of figure out your skill set and and your voice and all that stuff too. Um, but how did kind of like the, the journey through Vietnam menu come about? Did you pitch them on the idea or is it something that they were looking to do and you're like, Hey, what about this? Or how did, how did that all come to be? Yeah. Uh, I pitched them on the idea. I know BJ had talked about doing a Thai menu at some point um, based on his travels. And that kind of got me thinking like, okay, well, I don't know much about Thailand, but I do know a lot about Vietnam. So what would that look like for me, for my journey? And that's something I've always done as a hobby anyway. I just, I really enjoy taking pictures and traveling for food and keeping my own notes. So that kind of inspired me to go back and look through my old notes and be like, oh, so what are my favorite dishes? What are the cities I remember most? What do I think represents those? So I kind of tried to fit that into the Chapman's mold of, okay, we're doing an eight course tasting menu. What would this Vietnamese menu look like at Chapman's? Um, so came up with some ideas, some dishes, um, like an idea of the flow of the, the menu and presented to, to BJ and Wes. And they really helped me dial it in and bring it to life. Were there any dishes? Because the final count, I think was like eight, uh, which is roughly usually what, what they are with their menus. Did you come up, was it like you came up with 15 and then scaled it back to eight or were there any dishes that didn't make the cut or? No. So actually the, um, the final menu was pretty similar to the first draft, especially in terms of the, the core ingredients for the dishes. So I knew which eight dishes I wanted to do and I knew what ingredients I wanted to use in those dishes, but the presentation, I had no clue where to even begin. So that was the big one where, um, like I think the biggest difference from what I had in my head to what happened on the plate was probably the papaya salad. I knew I wanted some kind of raw papaya, the young papaya salad with a shrimp component, but didn't really know how to put that on the plate. And that was where BJ had done those shrimp noodles in the past at a different restaurant and presented that. He was like, hey, what do you think about this? And I was like, that sounds amazing. I have no idea how to do that, but if you show me, let's let's try it out. So he walked me through that process. Um, and that was another one where we tried, uh, we tried three or four different presentations of that before we finally landed on the one that we really liked. There was a lot of trial and error. A lot of those dishes I had cooked some version of before. So like I knew what I wanted them to taste like, and I had the, uh, like the bulk recipes. So like I knew what the sauces, I knew how to make the sauces, things like that. But then, yeah, like putting them on the plate, putting them together was a very collaborative effort with everyone in the kitchen. Yeah, I mean, I I think it came out really awesome. It was, a, I think, a fun experience. I think I think the reservations for it sold out way in advance too, so it was definitely popular. I think everybody really enjoyed it. So I know, uh, I think BJ mentioned tinkering with an idea for some sort of kind of like southern pot liquor thing um, sometime in the future or something similar that they'll wind up doing. But a couple more questions for you. About eight more questions. Pretty much ask everybody. Um, who would you say is kind of the biggest influence on your cooking career thus far? Uh, I mean, Anthony Rodin is probably the first one that comes to mind. He's definitely influenced me the most in terms of just being open to, to traveling, trying new things, being open-minded. Um, in terms of in the kitchen, I would probably say the, the chef I worked for first in Vietnam, um, Bao La. I think we have very similar cooking styles in terms of the things that I enjoy and the way I like my food to taste. Um, I fit very well with him. Like that's also his style. So getting to work for him, I think really changed my cooking the most. 
Um, just in terms of going from kind of definitely a young, inexperienced cook with a lot of ideas to he really helped me focus and uh, refine a lot of my cooking. What's the uh, one kitchen item that uh, it's not a knife, but what's the one thing that you can't live without? Ooh, um, I mean, honestly, I think the, the tool I use most in the kitchen is probably a pen or a Sharpie. Um, it's a lot of writing things down and keeping track of things. But I will say I just got a, an immersion blender at home and I use that way more than I thought I would. That's been a lot of fun. What's the one Columbus restaurant you'd recommend that isn't Chapman's? Um, I love burgers. That's probably my go-to comfort food. This is a burger town. You got a lot to choose from. And yeah, there's a there's stiff competition in Columbus for that. So uh, after Chapman's, I would say my, my favorite burgers are probably Preston's and... Um, I've recently discovered Ash and M, the the pop up at Classics. Um, they make a great burger. So yeah, they used to um, they used to have a pop up where that new it's like right next to it's basically right across the street. It used to be a bar and then got turned into some sort of like axe throwing place. But they used to be above that. I thought they were negotiated on like a food stand, kind of one of the food halls. But maybe that fell through with COVID. So they might have just popped up across the street. But what's uh? Bucket list kind of travel destination, bucket list restaurant, haven't been to, want to go to? Um, bucket list destination, I would say, is Japan. Um, that's always been high on my list. Is there a certain part of Japan, like Tokyo or Okinawa or? Tokyo, definitely. Um, I've just heard from so many people that that's one of the best restaurant cities, if not the best restaurant city in the world. And um, probably Okinawa, or not Okinawa, uh, Osaka. I've heard Osaka is great for street food. Um, so those are the two places I really want to get to when I can, um, bucket list restaurant. Uh, there was one restaurant in Hong Kong that I never got to go to that was pretty upset about called Ronin. It's the same chef that you might've heard of Yardbird. Um, they recently got their first Michelin star. It's uh, Japanese Izakaya mm-hmm. type restaurant. Um, he also has a seafood focused restaurant called Ronin, um, that I never got to go to. So that was, that's a one big regret from, uh, from Hong Kong. Uh, what's the craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant while you're working? Oh, craziest thing. Um, in, I do remember one time in, during the protests in Hong Kong, we, we managed to get tear gassed inside the restaurant. Um, like we had everything closed. We knew there were protests going by and they must've fired the tear tear gas right outside the restaurant because it got sucked into our AC and our ventilation. And all of a sudden you could just like, it started in one corner of the restaurant. People were kind of like rubbing their noses and sneezing a little bit. And then within a few minutes, the whole restaurant was in tears. (laughs) That was, that was a shock. Uh, Food or drink guilty pleasure. Is there anything that you know it's just like you're going up and down the grocery store aisles and you're like i gotta stay uh, stay out of that aisle because i know this is down there i have a horrible sweet tooth i love chocolate and i can't stay away um so that's been especially now that's easter that's that's my favorite candy holiday uh, i can't stay away from the cadbury's cream eggs that's that's been the guilty pleasure lately what's like the your favorite dish like the one thing that you ever cooked or created that you kind of look back upon and you're like you know that's kind of like your aha moment like where you knew that yeah i I could do this going forward like where it all kind of came together Hmm. um i really really enjoyed the putting together the the rice and pork for the vietnam week menu right i mean i love barbecue i think my my all-time favorite meal is grilled meat over rice (laughs) so being able to to translate that in a way that fit onto a menu in Columbus that people in Columbus that may not be familiar with Vietnamese food were able to come down and enjoy that dish and say like, oh, okay, I get this. I don't need this to be explained. I don't need, there's no special instructions here. It's just a, a good plate of rice and pork. Um, that made me really happy to be able to, to put that on a plate. And then what would be your favorite uh, Anthony Bourdain, like episode, moment, scene? Is there anything that stands out that you always just kind of associate with him? Yeah, I mean, the Vietnam episodes, obviously, are they mean a lot to me. Um, The scene with him and Obama, I think that's just so cool. Uh, Watching them sit down, eating bun chow at a little tiny little plastic table. Those are really fun. And a lot of the American episodes, especially the ones he's done in like Pittsburgh and West Virginia, um, Houston, I 
one thing I really, really like about his show was that he didn't lean into that kind of exotic cliche that he wasn't going to these weird places and trying strange things. Like he was just, he was showing up at a place and seeing how people live and somewhere like rural West Virginia is never somewhere I would consider to be a, a destination for a travel show. Like he's done some in like New Jersey and things like that, where that's never some, like if you ask someone their top 10 bucket list places, no one's going to say New Jersey. But I think those shows are always so fascinating that the way he was able to really get into those communities and um, just kind of shine a spotlight on places that don't usually get it, I think was amazing. Did you ever get to go to, I don't even remember the name of the restaurant that him and Obama ate at. Uh, I'm sure it was very popular after that episode aired and was probably, did you ever get a chance to like go by or? Yeah, I did manage to go there. Um, and now they actually, they do have that table uh, okay. encased in glass. So it's, there's a, there's a monument to, to both of them there now. I will say it was not my favorite Buncha place. I, I do have some other recommendations. I think that uh, you should go to before that place, but I did get to go and it was good. I had a good time. Yeah. I'm sure now it's probably more of like, this is where Obama and Bourdain were, but even at the time, cause we were talking about it, you know, cause we got our episodes mixed up for the Vietnam ones. And we were wondering like how far in advance that had to be planned with like secret service, figuring out like location and entrances and exits and like all that stuff and how, It'd be really fascinating to find out like how they settled upon that specific place. Yeah, it's it's a long process um, because when I worked for the bar in Ho Chi Minh City, um, we did a lot of work with the the U.S. consulate. So when Obama was in Vietnam, our bar was on like the short list of places for him to come visit. Um, but we didn't have a back exit to the kitchen, and apparently that was a no no. That you need way more exits than we had in the bar. Uh, Secret Service just said, "Nope, not an option. Too small. Can't do it." Um, but I know there's a a long, long checklist of of things they have to run through. Yeah, that's um, yeah it's it's fascinating. Uh, where can uh, people find you? Social media, website, all that stuff. Uh, social media is the best. Instagram and Twitter uh, at Pork Stories is where I spend most of my time. Cool. Yeah. And then obviously the Chapman's Instagram because mm-hmm. you work there too. But um, yeah, but yeah, this is awesome uh, with the, you know, kind of behind the scenes on your short, you know, I guess I shouldn't say short. I mean, it was six, six years in Vietnam, but mm-hmm. you know, it's definitely a place that I know my wife really wants to go. She, she had an opportunity, I think that almost came to fruition at one point she was able to almost get there and it, I think it kind of fell through at the last minute. So uh, hopefully once, you know, vaccinations and everything get up, everybody can, mm-hmm start traveling again like we used to be able to but um yeah counting the days but yeah and I, I highly recommend it i think vietnam is a really really special place so always happy to answer questions about it i could talk about it all day it's it's a great place but yeah really appreciate appreciate you coming on uh everybody check out chapman's follow pork stories and uh, we'll talk to you soon yeah thanks so much it was great talking to you thanks again to matt larkin for coming on the podcast really cool to just kind of talk with somebody about, you know, traveling and living in a country that's a place that's pretty high up on kind of the travel list of uh, different places I would like to go, you know, especially being in Southeast Asia. And and each of those countries is so different and uh, so diverse with cuisine and, and experiences and everything like that too as well. So it's definitely a place that's pretty high up on the list uh, with, you know, Ho Chi Minh City, I think definitely moved up. You know, originally it was probably more likely to go to like Hanoi, but then after talk with Matt, it's like, oh, okay, Ho Chi Minh is probably the city that you actually want to go to uh, over Hanoi. So, I mean, you want to do both, but I think you wind up, like he said, spending more time in, in Ho Chi Minh City because Hanoi is a little bit more uh, traditionalist, so probably a little more reserved and, and stuff like that with the uh, cuisine and, and culture. But yeah, hopefully sometime soon be able to kind of plan a trip um, headed over there. We'll definitely hit him up for more advice um, whenever that day gets closer to as well. And he's somebody who I can kind of, you get a lot of similarities with, you know, he's somebody who travels for food. So, you know, I think recently he just went over to Chicago um, to celebrate uh, anniversary with Liz there. And and they were eating at a couple different restaurants too, which, which based on his Instagram, which looked pretty awesome. So uh, definitely a little jealous um, that he was able to pop over there, but with the vaccines and everything coming out, you'll definitely be able to start doing some traveling um, here soon and kind of getting back to it and and having experiences. So uh, make sure you follow Matt on Instagram uh, at Pork Stories. You can find him.
but yeah, definitely enjoyed having him on the podcast. And and so that makes two different kind of, you know, we had BJ, obviously, who's the executive chef there. And then and now Matt, who's in the kitchen. So uh, there's definitely two other names um, that I'm thinking of, you know, from from Chapman. So we'll probably try and get those guys on um, to here eventually some point in the not too distant future. Once I kind of get cut off with some of the the backlog of stuff um, that I have for you guys, then I'm just trying to work through and, and get caught up here um, before vacation winds up sneaking up on me too fast and um, you know, don't want to leave you guys hanging while be away for a little bit. So yeah, appreciate everybody listening. Make sure you check out you know past episodes. Like I said, check out the Parts Now Known, uh, the Vietnam episode that kind of ties in pretty well with this episode. Check out the BJ Lieberman interview, Chefs and Guests. Um, that definitely gives you kind of more background on the restaurant and everything and, and kind of where you know Matt's working right now. And then also check out, you know, all the other chefs and guests episodes, you know, Mondays are restaurant reviews, which just kind of break down different restaurant experiences that I've had. You know, if we go back to a restaurant, it's you know, usually one, two, three, four, whatever next to the uh, name in the episode and kind of recounting the menu, doing recaps and stuff as different menus roll out from some of our favorite restaurants, especially here in Columbus, you know, Chapman's, Veritas, Cleaver, you know, stuff like that. So um, also make sure to check out, um, you know, Parts Now Known. We just rewatch the Anthony Bourdain episodes, chronological order. It's just kind of a fun time. Um, you never really know what you're going to get. Sometimes we just go off the rails on different tangents. Um, sometimes it, it's kind of pretty straightforward with the, the episode. So it just kind of depends. It depends on, you know, what's going on in the world too as well. And some of that usually bleeds in. And then, yeah, the chefs and guest episodes, really proud of those. Um, so far, you know, we've done 10 here. We got two more already scheduled, you know, for release. So definitely excited about those. And we'll be putting some stuff out on Instagram, you know, just want to support the restaurants and and the chefs and cooks that have you know, agreed to come on the podcast. Um, definitely want to do more stuff. You know, we have a list of people that, uh, you know, we're going to reach out to again too as well for kind of setting up the next round, but definitely interested in talking to some people who maybe aren't executive chefs who are not running a restaurant and getting different perspectives, whether it's in Columbus or different restaurants that we've, you know, eaten at and experienced, but just kind of, you know, seeing, you know, where they're at in their career and then the progression that they envision themselves taking and, and stuff like that. I think it'll be a different perspective and, and pretty cool. And also, you know, definitely some sommeliers and, and some bar and beverage people too, as well, and getting their perspective, you know, on the industry and, and kind of what makes that side of the house tick too. And, and also the front of the house people, whether it's, you know, general managers or servers and stuff like that too, you know, somebody who's who's running, you know, kind of the front of the house restaurant. So be on the lookout for that stuff kind of in the future. Um, definitely some ideas that we're, we're toying with. But yeah, big thanks again to, you know, Matt for coming on the podcast and, and taking time out too as well. And everybody over at Chapman's, you know, Wesley, Justin, Pam, Raina, you know, every, everybody over there, you know, every time we've had a, been able to go over there, it's been just a great experience. So um, Seth, you know, behind the bar too, as well. So shout out to all those guys. So make sure you follow them on Instagram, but definitely follow the Eat Chapman's page too, as well. Um, that's kind of where they put out all their updates. And if you haven't been, make sure you go. It's definitely one of the best restaurants we got here in Columbus. It's also, you know, pretty new, just opened last year. So, and they're already working on um, some additional ideas for, for stuff to come in the future. So they're going to definitely going to be a, a mainstay around here for uh, years to come, which is awesome because we definitely need more more good restaurants, more great restaurants, and more great chefs, um, you know, and that whole team and everything. And it's all top notch. So can't say enough about them and and just the hospitality and just different, you know, coming on the podcast and stuff when when you don't know what you're gonna get, you don't, you know, know kind of if the interview is gonna take like a weird turn or something like that. So it's it's definitely always cool when someone, you know, kind of puts their faith in us to give them a, a good experience with coming on the podcast and and staying in touch and everything. So really appreciate all them over there. And um, that's it for the podcast. So make sure you follow Instagram and Twitter, Facebook, all that stuff. Check out the website, always new stuff going up. Make sure you listen to the past podcasts. You know, we'll give you some time here uh, in the coming weeks to get caught up in case uh, you're running behind. I know everybody's got a bunch of different podcasts they listen to, but um, yeah, appreciate everybody. Been a lot of fun so far with the first 10 and um can't wait to do the next uh, next 16, you know, plan on doing 26 this year. Already got an idea for one of them uh, that's going to be kind of a, a little little bit different, uh, more to come on that. I'm not sure if we're going to do that the 13th episode or if we're going to wait and do that like the the 25th episode, but um, that'll be a little, little unique. And then definitely going to open it up to kind of the people and see for one of the episodes, probably the 26th one, you know, who they want to hear from, you know, again. So kind of teased about it on a different podcast, but you know, different, uh, kind of just doing like a bracket format with all the, the 24 episodes. So if we have 24 different chefs breaking them into four groups of six, 
And then just putting up some polls on Instagram, letting people vote, kind of see who they want to hear from again on the podcast and, and, uh, having, you know, people come back, but definitely always an open invitation to anybody who wants to, you know, come back on and, and pitch stuff. We're definitely going to have people come back on, you know, sooner rather than later. I had a sneaky suspicion we'll get through the 26th, um, before we reach the end of the year. So I'm just trying to figure out, uh, you know, coordinating all that stuff, but been a lot of fun so far with talking to these people. Can't wait to continue to do, you know, some more of it and hopefully you guys enjoy it. Feedback's been great, but, um, yeah, really appreciate everybody listening and we'll talk to you guys later.